to Colin and Kyle uh, for leading us in the time of worship and for Charlie for leading us through our time together. Uh, as Charlie mentioned, my name is Scott, just in case you don't know me, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, uh, and it's my joy to be here with you and for us to be able to open up God's words uh, together. And thank you to Lindsay for uh, reading John 17, 1 to 26 for us. And so thank you very much for that. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, Steve was preaching through uh, John 15, and he said, we can only really scratch the surface in the time that we have together. And I think that is true for John 13 through 17. But there is a real richness in all these words that we are reading. And so I think, as Steve mentioned, I'm going to say again, I think I can only scratch the surface, really, as we go through uh, chapter 17 together. Uh, but this prayer is the longest continual prayer of Jesus that is recorded in Scripture. And it comes just before Jesus and the disciples, they leave the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus is arrested. These aren't the final words of Jesus that are spoken to his disciples, because we know that after the resurrection, that it says that he appeared to more than 500 people, and in that time we see how he is encouraging them, how he continues to open their eyes to the wonders of God, and he spends time restoring them. But at the same time, these are still some final words before his death, and final words are important. So first thing that we see here, as this passage is entitled, and if you've got it, I'd try and keep it open in front of you if you can, because I think it's just it's worth having that, so we can always refer back to the passage, but it's titled the High Priestly Prayer. So the office of high priest was first instituted at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to the Israelites through Moses. So Aaron and subsequently his descendants were chosen to be priests who were responsible for interceding for Israel before God. One priest was selected as the high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, to offer the sacrifice that would temporarily cover the sins of the people. When Jesus came, he offered his life as the ultimate sacrifice that would not only cover the sins of the people, but completely cleanse his people and save them. Jesus is the ultimate High Priest. In the Book of Hebrews, if you've never gone through the Book of Hebrews, and there's actually a really good study on Right Now Media that's a resource that we use when you get your login. And so there's a pastor in the States called J.D. Greer, and he does like a 15-week sermon series going through it. And it's absolutely fantastic. But Hebrews is this phenomenal book where it really does connect Jesus with the Old Testament and how he is the fulfillment of it. Yes, it can be a complicated book to go through, but it's worthwhile grappling with. Uh, so I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 7. So this is Hebrews 24 to 27. It speaks about Jesus as our great high priest. It says here, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, 
to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is our great high priest. He is our forever priest. And simultaneously, he is the perfect Lamb of God. It is a remarkable truth that just before Jesus goes to the cross, he's just about to be arrested, Jesus is praying for us. In verse 9 it says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And we know that we are included in that 2,000 years later, because in verse 20 it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word. I think it is wonderful, an absolutely amazing and wonderful thought that as Jesus was about to be arrested, of he knew what was before him in the hours to come, he was thinking of each and every single one of us in this room. He was thinking on all those who would trust in him, that would follow him, not just with him in that space right there, but for all of us who were to come. He knew that we needed this prayer. He knew of the struggles that we would face. He knew that we needed him. Um, there's a book called Gentle and Lowly, and um, if you've not read it, please do get a copy. It's by Dr. Dean Ormond. Uh, and he's got his chapter in this book, and he paints it beautifully. Uh, but he just speaks of right now, Jesus is constantly before the Father as our intercessor, or as our advocate, asking for the Father to look at us through his blood that was shed on the cross for us. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Say, Father, don't see them sins, but see them as the saints that they are through the blood of Christ. He's constantly saying it for us. To be seen as justified by his sacrifice on the cross, covered in his glorious blood that in a miracle of grace that washes us white as snow. And that is happening right now. And that is incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. Jesus is our great high priest. But we also see in this passage two other things that he is praying for us. So he's praying for us to be guarded and he's praying for our unity. And that's the two things that I'll focus on mainly in our time together. So in verse 15, if you look there, it says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We saw this a couple of weeks ago as we read through chapter 15, and we were reminded in that passage that the world may hate us. It is a strong <coughs> word, hate. And although we probably all have friends who don't know Jesus, who would not use this word of us, I don't think we need to think too far around the world to consider that our believers in Jesus are hated. There are countless examples of that around the world. If they persecute Jesus, then they are going to persecute his followers. Jesus in verse 14 prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Many of us have grown up in a world where Christianity has broadly been accepted and even taught in schools. 
Something that's always a given right now, and things I think we would agree are changing remarkably in the UK. Many of us will have been part of conversations, or at least heard of conversations, or overheard conversations, where Christianity is vilified and slandered. And I think especially for our young people, that they are growing up in a world that is full of challenges. I think on how much I find it difficult to be a Christian when I was a teenager in school, and I do not face a fraction of the things that they do. And so for our young people, for all of us, I think especially for our young people, we need to keep lifting them up in prayer because they are going to face challenges like we cannot imagine. And at the same time, we must realize what is going on behind this. Jesus makes it clear in our passage today that the devil is at work. Remember, this is a battle against spiritual forces of evil. Let us not be naive to that reality. Let's not stick our heads in the sand. The devil is on the prowl. He is the father of lies, and that is his primary method of attack. So in lies and deception, he is the deceiver. He looks to plant seeds of doubt in us. His plans are not for life, but they are for destruction. He lies about God, about who he is. He lies about our need of a savior. He lies about our identity and where our fulfillment is found. We have to understand that that is happening. And I think sometimes when we think consider attack in that. Our natural instinct is sometimes to run, is to flee. But what Jesus is praying here is not for us to have a holy huddle that is like brought over here, away from everyone else. Yes, we are called to be set apart. Yes, we are called to be holy. But he's praying that we be kept in this work. That we be kept as we take a stand in this persecution. So to guard us, Jesus is praying several things as we go through this passage. So let me just quickly go through them. First one you can see in verse 11, we praise, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Our continuing on in Jesus is thankfully not left to our own efforts. I know that if this was down to me and my efforts, I would fall over very quickly. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they are mighty in their purpose. Um, pervasive and so seductive that if it was down to us we can never be kept in our own efforts. But God is greater. He is so much mightier and if we stay with Jesus it's because Jesus has prayed for us, Father keep them. And it's his will that will be done and he is the one who gives us all that we need to stand, to be kept in this time of persecution. Second of all, if we want to read verses 6 to 8 with me, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. I like that idea of giving, receiving, and keeping. We have the wonderful words of God in our very hands. Some of you are holding that in a book, 
Some of you are tapping away on that on a phone or a tablet or something like that. No matter what it is, we have the incredible words of God before us. And in here we find the good news of Jesus. We find who we are made to be and we find truth is given to us freely and we must choose will we receive it and will we keep it. In here, it's a sword, isn't it? It's a sword. And we need to use it. We need to learn how to use the words that he has freely given to us. And in it we find truth. And in verse 17 it says, Sanctify them the truth. Your word is truth. As I previously said, the devil's main weapon of choice is lies. So Jesus prays that we would firmly stand in truth. So as we put on the armor of God, let's do a little bit of interaction here. What's the first thing that you put on in the armor of God? Anyone remember? This is the belt of truth. I find that fascinating of all the things. Before you hold up something to protect you, before you wield anything, truth goes on first. And I think there's something really important in that. And as I think of a belt, at least I think of what my belt does, it keeps everything up. It keeps everything where it's meant to be. It secures everything else. Truth secures in who we are. In the truth of Christ, in the truth of Jesus, we find the truth of who we are to be. We find the truth that we are to stand in. And he goes further, it says, the truth would sanctify us. So as we stand in this truth day in and day out, as we grow and mature more in our love of Christ and understanding of him, the more we become Christ-like, the more Christ-like we are, the stronger we are because we've stood in his power, in his truth. The stronger we are to be able to withstand the fiery darts of the devil. As we stand in this truth, would we be set apart from God? Would we not be tainted by lies? Would we not be tainted by the things of this world, of the flesh, or the devil? But as we stand in truth, would we be set apart for the glory of God? And even in times when we might find it extremely difficult, when we might feel that we are persecuted, that we feel that we might would we stand as set apart and holy for God? And this is all wrapped up in what Jesus says in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in the truth. The sanctification, this us becoming more Christ-like, this us being able to stand in Jesus, to be able to stand in his words, this all comes because of what Jesus has done for us. So this private prayer is pointing ahead to what will come in the coming hours, his death and his resurrection. We stand in his victory, which he won by his own death. In those moments of darkness, as Jesus breathed his last, as he hung there in utter agony, struggling to catch a breath, with a scourged back rubbing up and down against the wood of the cross, it seemed like a complete picture of defeat. But that was where the battle was won. That was where evil was defeated. That is where Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. And it is in his life that we stand. It is in Christ, our solid rock, our unmoving cornerstone, our firm foundation that in the attack of the evil one that we stand, he is consecrating himself so that we can be God. 
so that we can be kept. He gave his life so that we could be his. <coughs> Friends, do you feel the attack of the devil today? I don't know. Maybe some of you are feeling bruised and battered in the battle. I've seen people in recent weeks who have been crushed in the battle. I've sadly seen people who have chosen not to stand in the truth. People who have allowed their minds to be distracted by lies. For their eyes to be taken away from the glory of Christ and downward either to themselves or to others or to the devil. And it is heartbreaking to see. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see. And sadly, this is not the first time I've seen it. And all that I pray, it's probably not going to be the last. It is heartbreaking. The parable of the sword reminds us that there will be people who will be strangled by weeds. But yet I don't lose hope because God is mighty. Because he is stronger. And he is sovereign and his will will come to pass. On the other side, and to encourage you, I've seen in the past few weeks that people take a remarkable stance in truth. I have a friend who is just really struggling with aspects of life. And so what he has done is that he has written himself a letter and he reads it every day. In that letter, he calls out the struggle. He calls out where he is really struggling to hold on to the truth. He calls out the lies, and he writes the truth of Christ. He writes the truth of Scripture, and he reads it to himself every day. Not just the days when he is struggling, not just the days when he feels under attack, because he knows he needs to stand in truth day in and day out. And so he's got this three-page letter that I've used given a copy of it to me so I could read and it is beautiful. It is astoundingly honest. It is incredibly vulnerable. It is full of the truth of scripture. And boy, I was encouraged as I read. I was deeply encouraged. It doesn't mean that this person isn't still going to struggle. I love that he wants to stand in truth. I love that he wants to keep his eyes towards Christ. And I love how God has gifted him with what he needs to be kept in Christ. In the battle, know that God cares for you. Know that he has given us the tools to withstand these attacks. He has given us himself. He gave all of himself for us. And he has given us his spirit who lives in us and empowers us with all that we need. Know that Jesus is praying for you. If you are feeling under attack today, know that you have a king in heaven who is praying for you. He's praying for you to be guarded and to be kept. And he's praying not just for you to be able to survive in this world. He's praying for you to be able to thrive in this world. To be able to shine so bright for the kingdom of God. So that you are in life, maybe that city on a hill, for folks to see and for others to come and give glory to him. Know that he is praying for you. Know that you are not alone. In this prayer for us to be guarded, Jesus goes on to pray that we would be united. 
He knows the importance of us meeting one another, leaning on each other, and encouraging each other. So it comes up numerous times in this passage. Verse 11, that they may be one. Verse 21, that they may all be one. 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And we'll reflect on that in a second. And verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus wants us to be united as he and the Father are. In perfect harmony with one another. In love for one another. In purpose with one another. And we are to reflect that. Now that is an incredible call, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. We are given this task that we are given all that we are needed and that we need to reflect this perfect unity that we see between the Father and the Son. So this unity, this is much more than just saying hello to one another on Sunday morning. This is so much more than merely just getting along. This is reflecting the perfect unity of the Trinity. A joy and happiness that overflows from this union. It's a unity that we can only have as we abide in Christ. And we looked at that just a few weeks ago. Paul to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 10 verses in. So right at the start of the letter. This is what he says. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you are but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I love that he puts this right at the start of the letter because it shows the importance of it. I'm going to quote from someone called Cyril of Alexandria. And uh, you're not going to be surprised this person was alive in the 5th century. Not, not today. But this is what Cyril of Alexandria says. And this is, I love this. He says, he wishes, as Jesus wishes them, to be bound together tightly with an unbreakable bond of love. That they may advance to such a degree of unity that their freely chosen association might even become an image of the natural unity that is conceived to exist between the Father and the Son. That is to say, he wishes them to enjoy a unity that is inseparable and indestructible which may not be enticed away into dissimilarity of wills by anything at all that exists in this world or any pursuit of pleasure, but rather reserves the power of love and the unity of devotion and holiness. This is a big calling on our lives. Disunity is something that I think we have plenty of examples around us. In politics, I think we have an example probably every day. Party members squabbling over something, and the other party, they see it, and they're just like, yes, we're going to throw fuel on that fire, so they become as disunited as possible. Unity is something that's precious. And before we point fingers at anyone else or any other aspect of society, we must realize and be honest with ourselves that this is something that we struggle with too. Let's not point the fingers. Let's see ourselves. How united are we? Church history is full of stories of churches that are not united. Aberdeen is full of stories. Aberdeenshire is full of stories. 
of this, uh, this unity. Charles Spurgeon looked at this and he asked the question, why are we not one? And this was his answer. Sin is the great dividing element. The perfect holy will be perfectly united. The more saintly men are, the more they love their Lord and one another, and thus they come into closer union with each other. We all know that we come with different opinions. Sometimes we come with different values, priorities, and desires, that none of these should become greater than the glory of Christ and his desire for us to be united together, to be bound together in love. We're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so that means that Jesus is the top of our list and he is a part of every other part of the list that you might have. If you've got Jesus and then somebody else, two, three, and four, I don't think that's it. It's got to be Jesus and whatever is two, it better be that and Jesus. Number three, that and Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God. We must seek first Jesus in all that we do. Jesus should be our top priority. I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes isn't. Now, there will be times when we disagree with one another. And I think Jesus knows it, and that's why he prays for us to forgive one another. And that is why he's equipped us with the grace and mercy to be able to do that. But what is important is how we disagree. What language do we use? What tone do we use with one another? How lightly do we hold our, our, our own opinions to maintain love and unity? And I'm not talking about us sacrificing like the core of the gospel. We should never move on that. But there are some other things that we cling tightly to that I don't think are core, and they lead to disunity. How much do we prefer one another? Do we approach things thinking, I could easily be wrong, so I need to listen to my brother and sister in Christ, and I need to see what God might be saying in and through them. A few months ago, we spoke on how we are a family together. I looked at Ephesians 4, and one of the things I mentioned there is diversity of gifts leads to unity of purpose. For unity, we do not need to be uniform. To quote Spurgeon again, he says, Beloved, those in whom Christ lives are not uniform, but one. Uniformity may be found in death, but this unity is life. Those who are quite uniform yet have no love to each other. But those who differ widely may still be truly and intensely one. For unity, we do not need to be carbon copies of each other. And I praise God for that. Because again, we need one another. The differences that we have together should bring us together. And I actually think that is a much more beautiful picture of unity. 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of this love that we should have for one another. And we're kind of running out of time, so I won't turn there, but it is a wonderful passage. Please go and read it when you go home. But it is one that as I read it and see the love that we have for each other, I find it deeply challenging and I find it extremely humbling. As I read that passage, I often think we do it in weddings. <laughs> we read it in weddings, we're just like, we probably just need to be careful and just say, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus' love for us that we should chase after, but that's maybe not going to be how it is every day. <laughs> I see my feelings. I see instead of love for the times when I have envied people, 
instead of love, perhaps it's not being patient. Rachel and my kids have certainly seen the times when I've been irritable, and some of you have probably seen that as well. And it leaves me realizing my deep needs of Christ. If I want to be united with you, I need help. I need his forgiveness. So may we all realize that for unity, that for love, that we need help. And he is willing to give it to us. In our passage, Jesus goes on to give us two more reasons beyond discarding us from the evil and for, it, for us to hold unity is so important. So you can see it says, so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent to this world and so that the world will know that God loves us. Again, we come back to the central theme of the Gospel of John, so that you may believe. There is something, or at least there should be something so compelling in our unity that the world will know that God loves the world and that Jesus was sent into the world. And we can talk about outreach programs, we can talk about personal evangelism, and we absolutely should do those things. But how much do we talk about our love for one another and our unity together has been a way for the world to see who Jesus is? As people look on and see us united in Christ, for the glory of Christ, united in love, united in worship, united in purpose, and finally drawn together by one person, Jesus, would the world be led to ask questions of why? Why and how do they love each other so well? What's going on there? Does the community here ask us questions about our unity and our love for each other? It's a challenge. But in unity, we see that the name of Jesus will go out and be spread, and the people will see who he is. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Would we, as Contour Community Church, a united body have an aroma that points others to Jesus so that one day they may join us either in this room or hopefully around the corner in Morris. Would they join us in declaring who Jesus is? So my question is, how much do we desire this unity? The devil knows the power of unity and so he will use his deceptive and lying ways to get in the way of this. How much do we want to be together? How much do we want to spend time together loving each other and encouraging one another? How much time do we want to spend together in prayer and our knees before King Jesus? How much time do we want to spend um, taking on the concerns of one another? How, many time, how much time do we want to spend together in worship of our King? How much time do we want to spend together just getting lost in the wonder Jesus, digging into his word, over meals together, how much do we prefer one another? When I was first writing this, um, I wrote, how much do we want to fight for our unity? I think there's maybe something in it, but I felt I actually had the wrong way of thinking about it. 
It's not finding fighting for it, it's finding surrender. It's finding humility. So God, he helps us in this. And in verse 22, you can see there it says, The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one. Jesus doesn't say, I'll be united. Crap one, folks. Good luck. He's given us what we need for this. He's given us his glory. And as I thought about this passage, I wrestled with this verse quite a bit. And my mind went back to Exodus 33, and Moses asked God, Show me, please show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will make all my goodness to pass before you. He's given us his glory, he's given us his goodness for this. So, what does that mean? He's given us the glory, he's given us the goodness of salvation, he's given us the goodness of grace and mercy. He's given us the glory, the goodness of being his children, of being adopted sons and daughters of the Father and of being co-heirs with Christ. He's given us the glory of his presence whom we cannot escape. He's given us the goodness of his word that brings life. He's given us the goodness, the glory of his spirit who's continually transforming us. He's given us the goodness of his power at work in us, enabling us and equipping us for us to be united. He's given us the goodness, the glory of his love. He's given us the glory and the goodness of obeying him and submitting to his good and perfect will. He's given us all that we need in Christ. It's interesting, uh, when we had our evening of worship and prayer last week, myself, Esther and Colin, uh, we were in a little group and we started speaking about unity a little bit. And um, we kind of just owned it and just said, you know, the unity that we have is imperfect. But one day we will have perfect unity together. And there are examples of that in Scripture. If you look in the book of Revelation, you can see examples of this. Uh, and uh, one of them is uh, found in Revelation 7, where the tribes of Israel are listed. So the 12 tribes of Israel are listed. And they're counted each as 12,000. And it gives a total of 144,000. Now, in the book of Revelation, we need to be careful in how we read that book, especially when it comes to some numbers and the images that we see. But when you see a number in the book of Revelation, it's pointing to something else. And so that, and the number 12, is a picture of wholeness and completeness. And so we don't just have 12 here, we have 12 times 12. We have 144,000. So it's this picture that in heaven, that we will be com perfectly complete. We will be perfectly whole. We will be perfectly united <coughs> together. One day, we will have that perfect unity as Christ's church, of which he is the head of. We will all gather together and we will be united in praise and glory of our King. Until that day, we don't lose hope. We certainly don't lose hope when we struggle for unity. We strive in the power of the Spirit with surrendered hearts, with the glory that He shared with us so that we may be guarded so the world will know Him and so that God will be glorified. I'm just coming into a finish now. As Jesus prays this prayer, He is continuing to teach us how to live and how to pray. And in those opening verses, he opens with, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. As Jesus comes to the point of his death, to the end of his ministry and culmination of all, his desire is for the Father to be glorified. As he was brutally beaten, 
as he was unfairly and illegally tried, as he hung on the cross with nails driven through his hands and feet, what was his desire? It was for the Father to be glorified. And make no mistake about it, in that place that we wipe the feet, God was glorified. Sin was beaten. Death was beaten. And we received new life. Friends, as we endure the hardship of this world, as we potentially endure being hated, maybe ostracized, maybe spoken of behind our backs, maybe a lot worse, would we persevere through those moments knowing that we have King Jesus who is praying for us? And will he be glorified in and through us in those moments? As we love one another, as we look to reflect the unity of the Trinity as we prefer one another, as we choose community over individualism, as we choose to be with others to serve them, as we look to be that aroma that tells the world the truth of Christ. Would Christ be glorified? Would no one else in our lives receive the glory that he alone is due? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we want to acknowledge afresh that we need you. That we desperately need your help. <clears throat> Father, thank you that right now that you see us through the blood of Christ. That you see us as saints and not sinners. Thank you that you have given us all that we need to be kept in this world. Thank you for this huge call that you've placed in our lives to be united. To be this incredible picture, this reflection of the unity between the Father and the Son. And as a huge calling God, and we say afresh, we need your help in that. That is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. So fathers, we are here as the Contour Community Church this morning. We surrender ourselves afresh to you. We humble ourselves before you again. Come and equip us and enable us for, for this incredible task. Lord, in all things, in our unity, in our keeping, would you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.